Good. No, recently, um, uh, you had a one of your blog posts hit uh, Hacker News, which was the uh, developing, um, uh, you know, you know, lessons learned on how to develop a compiler, um, yes, for your programming language, uh, Austral. And I thought, I thought it would be great. I thoroughly enjoyed your writing. I thought, geez, let me reach out to you and see if I can uh, uh, hear your side of the story. I want to hear what, 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 what's the background with uh, Austral, with with all your yeah, the enlightened writing that you got. I think I think this might be an interesting conversation. So, hello, welcome. Thank you, thank you, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, thanks for your kind comments. It's um, I tried to put some effort into the prose, but I can't guarantee the the, the quality. Um, yeah, do you want me to just yeah, jump into the, the introduction of the language? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so Austral is a new programming language. It's um. It's a generally like low-level language. Uh, you can think of it basically as either Rust, the good parts, or you know a more modern take on Ada or Pascal or mm. something along those those lines. Um, the design goals for the language are basically just simplicity. So the language is designed to be simple enough that you can just fit it in your head. You don't. There's no need for language lawyering. It's not like C where you could spend a lifetime. Writing C and there's still some some dark corner that you you yet to explore. Um, strictness along the lines of Haskell and such. Uh, there's a thousand little liberties that our languages take. Where this is um, in Austral, it's much more locked down. Mm. And yeah, the, the, the angles generally stem from a from a different view of programming, where it's like programming languages generally are. Um, some people phrase this as an issue of trust, where it's framed as, you know, some programming languages like C trust the programmer to get it right. And some programming languages like uh, Haskell or Rust distrust the programmer and put yes. all these um all these um boundaries and limitations. But yeah, I guardrails. I try Yes, the, the the guardrails that many programmers were sent. But I think of it as um as a matter of um you know how much how much you're burdened by programming. Um, I like to make this analogy to aviation, where you know, if we flew planes the way we write code, we would have daily plane crashes. And the comments from all the armchair pilots would be like, um, well, it's their fault because they didn't read, you know, subsection 7.2.1.1 where the manual says that uh, you know, at 3 p.m. Well, there you go. You see a, a good yeah. example. <laughs> At 3 p.m. on a Tuesday, the wings fall off the plane, and that's expected behavior. And why didn't you know that? Yeah. Um, of course, in, in aviation, we didn't do that because we accepted that human error is just an inseparable and intrinsic part of human activity. Yeah. And, you know, people are tired and they're burned out and they're traumatized by writing executable YAML and they have a limited working memory, limited attention span. They have constant business pressures to release. So it's not really about, you know, the, the often when there's a massive security vulnerability, the 
the argument is made that this is somehow like a comment on the programmer's virtue, that if they, they were a better programmer, they just wouldn't have bugs. But the long train of, of hilarious and astounding security vulnerabilities kind of proves that, you know, this isn't the case. People are doing their best and they keep failing because their tools are insufficient. And, you know, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, t I completely agree with you. I remember one one guy telling me, like, why can't we build software the way we build bridges, you know? And, I, you know, this is, there was a, I've spent a long time sort of thinking about that. And to, I don't know, this, it seems like a, like it seems like a, the mythical sort of a, a, a thing that one can actually achieve. But, you know, in the recent podcast I had with them, um, I, I forgot his name. We were talking about um, uh, Join Calculus. And yes, he's, he's written a book on the science of functional programming, basically, where he sort of like breaks apart um, some sort of like almost axioms of 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 uh, a of, of a programming language that sort of like lead or guide um, just like math mathematics or some other like constructs within within uh, engineering would lead or guide the engineer to creating um, uh, better um, um, products. Like for example, I mean, you you can create buildings that fall down, like in China, <laughs> that does happen. Um, but uh, but you know, like generally speaking, you've got the tools which are able to sort of lead or guide you in the right direction and don't fight you. Um, um, and at least in my opinion, like a lot of functional programming has well, not a lot, but some of the core bits of functional programming actually do lead or guide you in a, in a, in a in an intuitive way. Now I'm interested. Like you chose, you chose to go for a, a, a very low-level sort of procedural um, um, uh, programming language. Uh, what, what was the reason for going that that direction? Well, um, it's because of this this sign goal of simplicity. Like um, I was told to have a garbage collector, for example, and it's not because of performance, um, because that's a common argument that people make about uh, against garbage collection. Um, arguably performance predictability would be a, a better argument. Uh, the reason it doesn't have a garbage collector is that it's simply uh, too, too, too much complexity. <laughs> you need a fat runtime. Garbage collection algorithms are, are very subtle. Uh, you need to handle concurrency. You need to handle uh, performance. And you, you have this natural trajectory that every JVM goes through where it's like, you add more and more parameters to tune the garbage collector. And I think it was um, the creator of the Go programming language that said, um, you, you eventually have someone who's the full-time garbage collector tuner. And it's... yeah, you need like, and, and Go, you know, calling C code from Go is very complicated because it has this complicated uh, fat runtime and it has user space threads and you need some sort of weird synchronization that I don't understand. So the reason it's very Spartan is because I don't want to have to deal with with all these complicated things. And a, a low-level language just means there's less to understand as a whole. Mm, okay, okay. And then, and then what I what attracted me so much towards uh, your writings as well as you you the way you communicated along with the implementation is that you've you found a lovely little combination of linear types error handling and then um uh you know what was it uh, um capability basically yes capabilities the security yes. the security side of things and the way those sort of like 
tie in together is is actually quite beautiful. Uh, that, that, when, when I saw that, then I thought, I thought, God damn it. Okay, now I want to hear the story surrounding this particular design decision, how you arrived at that. Um, yeah, and, and, and maybe later we can also open up, like, for example, the com comparison with affine types with, of rust. And, you know, this, this sort of chapter, we might be interesting to go into that, if you don't mind. Right. Um, well, the design, I've done my best. I can't, I... I can at least say that if it is not perfect and it does have a couple of rough corners, it is at least internally consistent and coherent. Yes, um, that's admir admirable, I tell you. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it wasn't designed in two weeks like JavaScript, which is not actually a comment um, against JavaScript. It's actually a comment against me. I, I spent um, a, a very long time on the design, like a truly an embarrassing, an embarrassing amount of time to the what? point where I was ashamed to talk about it with my friends because it was, oh, it's that language that you've been uh, Half writing a decade. since. Uh, more or less, yes. Yes. Since, like, <laughs> 2016. So uh, I was it's ashamed crazy. to talk with it's my crazy. friends because it was, yeah, it, it was like, um, oh, it's, yes, the programming language that you're going to finish uh, someday. Um, yeah, it, it evolved a lot. Um, yeah, the design changed a lot. I had to explore like a big section of the, or the programming language design space, but eventually, it sort of, sort of fell into place. You know, actually, the first thing, um, the first thing I wanted to make a very long time ago was like a statically typed version of Common Lisp, um, which is kind of a, a tall order because Common Lisp has a bunch of, uh, it's very, very idiosyncratic and, and strange, and you you can't really modify it. Although uh, a friend. From Twitter has uh, has actually just done that, and I'll, I, I'll it's called Colton, um, like Col T O N, and it's statically typed, sort of Haskell on top of Common Lisp, but um, yeah, that, that required a great deal of thinking, and I eventually sort of just began zeroing in on the on the present design. Um, it's informed by like Rust. It's informed by like older languages didn't quite um make it to production, like Cyclone. That was an old um, uh, research programming language. There's a bunch of programming Lang. languages. Yes, Pac yes, that's, that's mentioned. Yeah. Uh, you know, things that exist only in in citations. Packlang is a great example because it's like it's it exists vaguely in like a PDF that you can find maybe, and it's like ethereal and mysterious, and you can't really find any references to it. Uh, there's a language from Microsoft Research called Bolt. Uh, they do a lot of great work. So yeah, that was part of like um, how I developed the system. And I wish I had actually kept like lab notes and a bibliography because I can't, I can't really quite trace the genealogy of ideas to link to, to, link to the language. But yeah, uh, the basic point is yeah, I came into a thing that um, I still follow the ideas quite naturally, and they led to something that I'm fairly happy with, and it satisfies. All the requirements that I have in my head for like a programming language, which is like it should be roughly orthogonal. Features should not impinge upon one another, which is very hard to do in programming languages because the the natural tendency is for everything to um to bump into each other uh, and intersect in in nasty ways, creating all sorts of complexity. Uh, it's simple enough that you can just read the spec from beginning to end, which is currently like 110 pages, and most of that is the rationale, which just explains the the various features and why, why, why this, mm. what was, why not this, what was left in the cutting room floor. Um, yeah, the actual spec is very short. 
And yeah, the, the goal is um, to make a tiny language that fits in your head and evolves slowly and that you can write code and have it compile and have a good amount of confidence that it's going to work and leave that alone for 30 years and come back later and just compile it again and run it again. And that's how you get your bridges. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a good analogy. Um, why is software so unreliable is a um, difficult question that I can't really answer. I think, you know, programmers are often very re reactionary in terms of like rejecting uh, theory, like ideas from theory. I, I know I was more of a, you know, practical minded, you know, I don't need computer science stuff, but um and, and Austral is not like a like an ivory tower uh, fanciful you know language. There's a quote there's a quote by but that I like from um from this computer security um paper that's like the ship carries stones from the ivory tower but only as ballast. I'm oh, paraphrasing right. it. Yeah right 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 yeah. right yeah. So it might be a hard sell to have to talk about like you know linear types and, and type universes and things like that and, and convince people that no, no, this isn't an ivory tower thing. This is actually a quite ordinary and, and workmanlike, but I'll try. Yeah, no, I've I've gone through I've gone through a similar sort of learning curve, beginning like starting off with like, ah oh, no, no, these academics are you know too too airy fairy. And then yeah, kind of start to see as time goes by, you're like, mm, actually the academics were right. Yeah. Over here, at least over here. I'll show the grad students come along and fuck up things, you know, make the most awful implementations that are completely and utterly unusable. But then you're like, oh, okay, you know, let's pick out the gems in the in the papers and then uh, compose it into this nice little thing. And then after about 25 years, it becomes mainstream and people are yep. just like, yes, this is normal. And, um, and I think it's about a time that I think uh, what with Rust um, have sort of introduced, uh, well, loosely speaking, linear types or affine types into the the the, the sort of the programmer's lexicon. Now, s now we're in a situation where people are starting to realize that this is actually a pretty good direction. So maybe you want to tell us exactly what is linear types um, and why didn't you go with, uh, for example, um, affine types or the, even the difference between the two, etc. Good. Yes. I've actually prepared the slides for this, so maybe I'll check this. Dude, can we even one. can you yeah, this is this is this is great you've done that. Um do we so need to do something? Hold like on. Share screen. Why isn't nope. this working? No, 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 just wait. Okay, multiple participants can share simultaneously dual monitors. Okay, who can share all participants? Who can start sharing when someone else is sharing? Oh, Jesus, just, just, okay, now, try share now. Aha. Does this work? I see something. I see. Yes. Uh, let's see. Ooh, this is the first time there's a blah, blah, blah. slide share. Motivation. Awesome, blah. brother. Oh, oh yes. Um, is it a Dude, you've got 50, 50 slides there. <laughs> uh, it's just a... a I wonder okay, if this no is a shortcut. Okay, whatever. Next. Uh, right. So what's the motivation? Your, can, can, you, can you sort your microphone? Your microphone a little bit closer just now. It was... Yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Okay. Shoot, good. mate. Okay. Linear types. Why mm. do we want linear types? So there's basically 
if you look at any graph of uh, of security vulnerabilities um in like c or c++ programs it's all like like memory memory buffer overflows things like that mm. um some programming languages solve that by putting a garbage collector and not letting you touch memory at the cost of introducing a lot of complexity and performance issues and you know having to tune the jvm's garbage collector uh for all eternity which is a Sisyphean task um and so linear types, they provide three features. They allow you to enforce high-level protocols in software. They allow you to prevent a huge class of security vulnerabilities. And they allow you to constrain, uh, like types do, like a good type system does. It allows you to sort of add semantics to add meaning to your, to your program and constrain the space of possible programs. Right. And the motivation I chose here is um, just a file system API with like C syntax, where you have yeah. just you know, the file type you have open file, takes a right. string and opens file, right. write the string to a file, close the file. Right. Um, implicitly, programmers know what this does. There's an implicit life cycle to the file object, right. which where it's this. You create the file, you write zero or more times, and then you close it. But the languages, programming languages don't really allow you to enforce this. So you can you can see you can represent the, the life cycle as like a graph where you have you start with open file and then you can close it or you can write to a, a string to it n times and then close the file. But you cannot actually enforce this. And in fact, if you add all the other transitions that the programming language permits you to do, you have all these erroneous transitions where you can open a file and forget and just do nothing and leak right. memory. Mm -hmm. Or you can write to a string and then also forget to close the file and leak memory. You can close the file twice. You can try to reuse the file after it's been closed. And in a file system API, it doesn't much matter. But with um, this also applies to pointers, where allocating memory, the referencing and writing to pointers, and freeing pointers is the equivalent of this um, uh, these instructions. Um, yeah, and when you leak memory, it's a more significant problem. And not freeing mem uh, freeing memory twice or using memory after it has been freed, it, it's just it's the thread that you pull on that collapses the whole thing because of, you got all these security vulnerabilities with buffer overflows. Um, you can access um, secure data that has been properly wiped. And right, so they basically fall into two categories, leaks and using something basically in the wrong order. Yeah. And this applies to everything that's a resource, any value that has a life cycle, like sockets, like pointers uh, to to memory, like file handles, like uh, database handles, anything that has this sort of protocol that has to be followed. And the standard solution is to throw static analysis at it. And static analysis is you have a bunch of programs that scan the source code and look for these type of vulnerabilities. And as with all things, it's like an 80-20 thing where they can find the 80% of the most common zero-day vulnerabilities. But the more subtle things that happen because there's a greater deal of there's greater indirection those things are harder to um to spot can i uh, i would like to interrupt um a little bit and ask a question in the implementation or what when you have a i imagine at some point there should be a pass on the compiler once you when you're compiling this and you've done all your types uh, type checking or whatnot you would need to do a linear type check pass yes and at that point, you are essentially doing what the static analysis 
tool would do. Well, yeah. Um, so does that not apply? Is I Well, mean... there's a subtle difference um, because of soundness. Uh, linear types, so like, like a type system, the thing about a type system is that it can have false positives. It can flow as incorrect a program that might actually run if it was a dynamically typed language. Uh, but they don't have false negatives. Uh, like uh, at least a sound type system should not have false negatives. It should not accept a program that has that has a type error yeah. and would crash at runtime. It should not accept it as valid. Static analysis is the opposite, where it can it's kind of like unit testing where it can prove the um, presence of bugs, but it cannot show their absence. And the, the problem is really quite fundamental because language semantics you can't really work them work around them. Like if the language um, permits all these liberties that lead to um, security vulnerabilities, um, you can try to constrain that after the fact. And you can do a static analysis, but it, it's not really possible to like slap a type system on a programming language after the fact and expect things to work with uh, minimal intervention or or no intervention at all. So the I see. It's, with... it's I suppose it's like holding a cup of water and like water in your hands, and it just leaks through your hands, your fingers. Yeah, it's, it's um, just... it's just that, you know, the foundations matter, and you just right. can't get around it. Yeah. Uh, and that's why you couldn't write like a Rust analyzer for C, and Rust had to be invented, is because you can just pile heuristic upon heuristic upon heuristic. There's always going to be something that slips out because you have all these huge code bases. Um, Linux is the classic code base that every um, static analysis tool is trained on. Yes. Linux still has security vulnerabilities, even after all these interventions, because fundamentally it's written in C and there's serious problems that can be corrected after the fact. Um, but yeah, so okay. so the, the problem with the static analysis is, is that it just doesn't catch every case. And what you want is a solution that's simple enough that it doesn't just burden you horribly um, when you're writing the, co the code. So like uh, theorem proving and you know code verification are kind of ruled out by this because even if they can be made simple, they do involve a, quite a great deal of unseen infrastructure like um, automated theorem prover software or SMT solvers are just huge, huge uh, uh, code bases that, that are almost impossible to certify the correctness of them. Um, yeah, so it has to be simple. It has to catch every case. And ideally, it should be just a fixed set of rules that you learn once and you apply them everywhere, uh, rather than just an ever-changing pile of special cases and rules and heuristics that just grows forever to try to encompass. Right. So it's it's not about you know, adding to the type system to catch errors. It's about removing possibilities for error until you have something that's simple. Right. From which errors cannot spring. And the solution is to all this is linear types. Uh, just as a type basically represents a set of values, which is not uncontroversial. Um, but a type is a set of values that share some structure or behavior. And linear types are types whose values can only be used once. And I think of an example, right. And the, the way Autel does this is very simple. Um, this set of types is divided into two universes. There's the free or unrestricted universe that contains right. types that are not linear. 
which can be copied harmlessly. Uh, essentially, anything that's not a resource, integers, floats, um, aggregate types containing other free values, uh, you know, like yeah, yeah. string constants, and you then use there's the linear types, right? Or, or just like just like the primitives, just things right. that can be copied that are not like pointing to memory that don't have a life cycle associated to them. Okay. Um, then there's the linear types, which are essentially everything that has a life cycle or a protocol that has to be followed. Um, yeah, and types can only become linear by either declaring them linear. For example, you know, you may want here's a record that has right. field X that's an integer, Y that's another integer. These are both three types, but you can declare that it's linear to make the thing linear because you may want to treat it as linear for whatever reason. Um, so you don't forget to use it, for example. And also by containment, because linear types are viral. You can, if you if T is a linear type and you put it in a record, this whole thing is linear. So uh, it's no the matter... G so it's the GPL of type systems. Yes, correct. It's <laughs> just as a GPL is viral linear types, you cannot hide them in a free type. Okay. And so then it... that means the very top level. Oh, you know, yeah. Okay, yeah. The very top level of that thing would be a would be a, a linear type. Correct. All the way through. Yeah. Okay. It, all, it always just one drop rule. Yeah. And the second rule is that, yeah, types, a uh, value of a linear type cannot, has to be used exactly once, not zero times and not n times, just once. And this doesn't have any, this doesn't require runtime checking to enforce. It requires just a, a very simple compile time check. Okay. And the, the code that does is actually quite simple. Um, it is 600 lines of code. So, Nice, nice. Um, thank you. It's mostly because it's doing less because it's uh, designed to be a simple system. Um, yes. Essentially, it means that the body will. Essentially, it means that a body will a linear type can only appear once with some subtleties. For example, this if f is a function that returns a linear type l, this doesn't work because you're defining the variable and then you're discarding it silently, and that's you're using zero. That's times. a no go. Yeah. That's no. Uh, this won't pass because X is being defined and then you're using it twice. Yeah. Um, this will pass because X is being defined here. And, and then you consume it. Here. Yes. Right. And this is called, using a variable is called consuming it. After, okay. Beyond this point, it is not usable. Okay. And um, there's a couple of subtleties, for example. That shouldn't fly. That shouldn't right. work. Because it's not quite that it only appears once in the source code. For example, if it, it appears once, it has to appear consistently in if statement branches. Okay, so, it can't so both appear the branches branch. must get it, must must right. see it. Okay. Either either it doesn't appear in both branches or it appears in both, but not oh. one or the other. Because at this point, the, uh, after the if statement, the compiler doesn't know where it's consumed or not. It makes sense, yeah. So this passes because you're using the variable x once in both branches. And just the final subtlety is just like loops. If you define it outside the loop, you cannot use it inside the loop because quite simply it could be used any number of times. Or okay, I have a question on this one. Yes. So so as I emailed you, I'm I'm also implementing a programming language, and this is one yes. of the primary reasons why I'm thoroughly interested in your work. Um, except I don't have loop constructs. I want to purely deal with recursion. So yeah. Erlang style, there's no loops, there's no for loops, none of that, just do recursion um, with some guards and you can uh, you know, like exit the recursive loop um, depending on certain conditions. Now 
the thing that I've arrived at the the equivalent sort of rule in your situation. You say you can only do you can only um, okay. What's your rule here is that you can only have uh, once per iteration, right? Um, you can you can move the body will into the loop, but you can't use the body will defined outside loop inside yes. that loop. So this means um, as a recursive function, you you should not be able to pass in a linear type as well, in the function I, signature. Is that correct? I, I think you you can. Um, it might be good oh. to look at an example, but um, the basic idea is that you suppose you have an if statement or if if expression. If you want to have an expression based language, yes, um, it would be basically in the branch that's for the base case of the recursion you consume the value and in the branch that's for the recursive case you just pass it to the um to the function again so you're using it in both branches hang about look okay let's 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 not add a conditional we just do a recur we just do a recursion and yeah. then what will happen is that you keep passing that recursion that that, that linear type into the 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 function you know each time oh yeah Oh so, yeah, yeah. If we, if you have an infinite loop, that is unsound. But uh, that is the case with. Um, uh, sorry, yeah. Of course, the, you have to have a conditional yeah. because you want to exit the right. frequent thing. Oh yeah. I mean, okay. I mean, this is the case. This is kind of an asterisk. Um, this is the case for um every Turing complete programming language. The type system is unsound. If you have a if you have a function that's like f that returns a type t, and then yeah. the body of that function is just return f parenthesis, so that it recurses forever. Uh, the the type system is actually unsound because um this function doesn't actually return t it just recurses forever so it's kind of a lie so in in a sense every every type system that allows you to have like infinite recursion is unsound but um i mean that's well this may be this may sound self-serving but i think that's a rather minor detail Yes, uh, yeah you're right it's kind of like a divide by zero maybe sort of kind of thing <laughs> yeah i mean um, like you can you can just when there are infinite loops, a lot of guarantees just don't apply for type systems in general. Mm. Okay, so then okay, just to repeat what you said earlier on in the conditional. No, actually, could you repeat what you said earlier on about yeah. the conditional? So basically, every recursive function you're going to have a some sort of conditional expression where you have the base case where you just end the recursion. Yes, and the recursive case where you just keep iterating and. You simply ensure to consume the the argument in both. Um, okay. I'm just trying to think of an example. But um, there's not necessarily very simple examples. But if you imagine maybe a recursive factorial function, just pretend that the argument is um, is linear and that is it's consumed by comparing it to um, zero. And then if it is zero, you return one. And if it isn't, you just continue the recursion. Uh, actually, you don't actually... A, you don't this actually... is a good example because you can't consume it because you have to take a copy of it for the um, for the n minus one case. Right. This, is a, this isn't a great example. But um, I mean, you can write recursive functions in Austral. Um, it's just... I, I don't have a good example of that at the moment. Um, besides... I haven't introduced this, but you can use borrowing, which allows you to treat linear types as locally free, so to speak. And that lets you escape a lot of the guarantees. But yeah, like after this, I'd probably just write up a quick sample of the recursive function in Austral using linear types and show that it, it can be done. But you can certainly do it. I mean, it doesn't, 
That would well, be great. a lot of the restrictions on linear types are somewhat onerous, but they they don't really prevent you from writing code that you. They really only prevent you from writing code that will be incorrect. Um, I'm happy about those trade-offs, mate. I'm happy about those trade-offs. Like, like I don't want. I I hate things going bump in the night. And um, right. If you and just as you go through a learning curve with Rust. You know, you the, the borrow checker smacks you on the wrist, smacks you on the knuckles, and eventually you start to learn, and then you start to write decent code, and that actually works. So, I mean, yeah. So, anyway, I'd love to see that example of a of a, a recursive um, uh, function yep. using using uh, linear types in Austral. That would be really excellent to see. Yeah. Um, and maybe maybe I don't know if you would add some sort of a rule. Probably not. No, 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 no. I think yeah, I, I'm quite sure it's. Um... The type system is complete as it is. Um, it's just that I haven't had many. I think the readme has an example of a recursive function, but it's not uh, using linear types. It's okay. just that a lot of cases where you would use recursion um, and borrowing just obviates a lot of those um, difficulties. Okay. But um, to your point about things going bump in the night, yeah. When I, I think when I was younger, I was much more interested in having um, expressive power and. I um I liked Common Lisp because that was the first programming language that I felt really productive in. And I have a, a draft of a blog post that I have to finish about this because Common Lisp is a really great language at making you feel like a wizard. Yes. Like you're, you're casting spells. And um and that's all well and good, but after quite some time, I think close to 10 years now in this industry. The last thing I want is power. I, I just want fewer nightmares. You know, I want fewer just because all, all these all these languages that are so dynamic and so wonderful and so productive, within a year the code base is just uh, a, a mental health hustle. You know, it's just just lock it down enough already with, yes. with, the, yeah. with the macros and the reflection and the and the dynamism and the. Everything, everything's uh, reflective. Uh, no, let's let's just do something simple that works. Um, I, I agree with yeah. you completely, mate. I agree with you completely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you you have to have burned out sixty eight times to appreciate. Yeah, so, yeah. Otherwise, it just feels like there's too much stickiness. Yeah. Uh, continuing this, it's just these go. Yeah, let's go for it. Yeah. This is fine because you're moving the 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 variable into the loop. Blah blah blah. Oh, and this is just an example of like a. How will you do a linear file system API? Um, right. This is just Austral syntax. Uh, there's a file type, which is linear. A function open file, essentially the same as the previous sample. It takes a string, returns a file. Write string uh, takes a file, a string, and returns a file. Close file, returns a file. So does this, can we actually leak a file uh, like we saw earlier? Well, no, because if you do this, if you open the file and just leave it dangling, that won't it will fail yeah. because it's never consumed. Okay. Um, similarly, you cannot write this because write string returns a linear file object and you cannot silently discard a linear uh -huh. file. So that doesn't pass. So if you look at this, the graph with the mistaken transactions, these leaks, we can take them out. And we're left with just these two errors. Um, the use of the close and double close. We can't close a file twice because the file is yes. consumed here. And at this point, it has already been consumed. The compiler will raise an error. So remove uh, that after remove you use. the double uh -huh. close. 
mm. and use after close similarly consumed here used again here compiler detects it very trivial just rejected and now yeah. now we're back where we started where we have the precise protocol that we had in our heads and that we wanted to implement and now the language allows us to implement it uh actually strictly and yeah the type system essentially forces you to the correct usage which is you open the file you write n times each time you consume the variable and assign to a new one yes and close the file and yeah it matches all the requirements we want is it simple yeah you can write down all the rules and just um put your hand over them because they fit on a page and in fact I have uh, somewhere in the specification this linearity checking, blah, blah, blah. Here it is. Yeah. Like, you can just... Oh, where was it? Oh, there you go. Oh, yeah. that's lovely. Oh, that's that's all there is to it. And this includes borrowing and the convenience ergonomic features. And that's all there is to it. And th this is this is more a specification rather than a, an interactive material. So I don't, I don't want to like necessarily go through it. This is just like interaction. Uh, is it correct? Yes, because it satisfies all of the things we want. And it's static because it's just a fixed set of rules rather than some endlessly growing pile of rules and detectors and special cases for, for the various things. Um, and as a more sophisticated example, you have like a database API where you have a linear database type. I forgot to put the linear type. Um, mm -hmm. Linear transaction type. You open a database Oh, this should have oh God. Now I have all the problems. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this should also I, I can't, be. Uh, yeah, this yeah. should take a this should take a database <laughs> argument. Yes. Um, start consumes the database and gives you a transaction. Query takes a transaction and a string and gives you a transaction. Commit and cancel give you close the transaction in by other executing it or canceling it and give you back the database. Okay, just just before just to press pause, this module DB is this is the module header, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Austral has um yeah probably a somewhat controversial feature. It separates module interfaces from module implementations. And to be clear, this isn't like in C or C where it's like a kind that's, of a hack to enable that's, that's compiling. The first, that's yeah. the first thing that crossed my mind. I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. dude, this is not the 80s, the 70s. No, what no, the no. hell? <laughs> no, it, it's not a hack for separate compilation. I, I know this was going to be a controversial feature. Um, <laughs> the, the language would work just the same if, if uh, modules were defined in a single file and you had like public, private, opaque um, mm -hmm. modifiers. Um, in fact, there is a step in the compiler that takes the header file and the, the interface file them. and the body file and merges them into a single object. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but, but the reason this is is because um, I used standard ML and later OCaml, and uh, it's actually quite wonderful to have the interfaces separated from the modules because you can put all the documentation in the interface and separate interface documentation from implementation documentation and just have like just when, you, when, you, when you're checking code, when you're checking, mm -hmm. when you're trying to like remember, bring back into your working memory what's the interface of a module, you don't have to scroll through hundreds of lines of code. You just scroll through these brief terse um, uh, interface file. And it's true that IDEs and modern tooling can do much of that for you. But um, 
I find that there's a lot of context, like for example, version control or, you know, just reading a PDF documentation where you can't, you don't really have access to that kind of tooling and just having everything be explicit is good. Um, kind of a running theme throughout the language is that it's designed so that you can write code while keeping as little as possible in your working memory so that it's, um, yeah, you don't have to scroll through a huge file of implementation. You just search the interface file to, um, mm. to see what's going on. I've got to say um, that that is that is quite nice. That is quite yeah. nice. Yeah. I mean, this is much of this from my experience from using OCaml, where it's just it's just so convenient and and such a lifesaver, and especially for organization and for being able to like sketch an implementation ahead of time. Um. But yeah. Uh, specifically with this API, this kind of like a two-level API where you have the database API and then the transaction API. And when you yes. start a transaction, the database goes away. It's like hidden inside the transaction object and you can only get it back by committing or canceling the transaction. So it implicitly only lets you do oh, uh, one transaction that. at a time. So like this look is the basic that. usage. Hey, yeah, that's great. So it may not be in um decidable constraint, in which case you would in which case the uh start function would return both the transaction, like a tuple with the transaction and the database. Um but you may want to have just one database, uh one transaction at a time. And so the usage is basically this. You open the database, you start the transaction, database is consumed, you query with the transaction, you put a string, uh never mind the results because this is yeah, uh, irrelevant. Yeah. Uh, and you take the new transaction that is the result of query. Then you commit the transaction and you get back the database and you close it completely linear. And if you draw the, the graph of um, state transitions, it's somewhat rather complicated, but this is what you can do. And if you were to draw like the graph or like all the permitted transitions in a you know, normal programming language with linear types, it'd just be an ocean of red. Right. Um, and of course, in trivial examples like this, it doesn't really matter because you can obviously tell where you're forgetting to close the database, where you're forgetting to deallocate memory, where you, um, you know, you're reading from the socket after closing the socket. It's not, the, the toy examples don't really, may, may not really motivate this well, but um, the point is like when you're stuffing you know, database handles and data structures and passing them around and, and everything is very separated in time and space. That's where the bugs happen. And what, that's where the security vulnerabilities happen is when when things become separated in time and space and you can't easily like trivially verify the security properties by just reading the code because the code is just this labyrinthine mess. And what's next? Yeah, uh, just a brief note on borrowing. So like Rust lets you borrow uh, linear values. And what that means basically is in Austral, um, between creating a linear value and destroying it, you can, within a delimited block of code, take a reference to it, either a readable reference or a mutable reference. Um, and it's guaranteed not to escape that particular context that it's in and not to outlive the thing that it... Um, borrows from and uh, it, borrowing works it's essentially stolen lock stock and barrel from uh, Rust um, but it's pared down a little because um, Rust is really focused on ergonomics 
on making code friendly to like C++ um, programmers. So the, mm -hmm. the, the uh, Rust's borrow checker actually has, in, in the trivial cases, this, it's quite simple to know like where, how lifetimes work. But in more complicated cases, especially when you're involving things like um, anonymous functions, like closures or um, uh, asynchronous stuff. It becomes stuff. a nightmare. It, it, it's, this, it's actually quite involved yeah. in how the borrow checker works. And um, yeah, there's like lattices and drawings and, and abstract computer science concepts. And I actually checked the source code to do the comparison. It's, uh, the borrow checker is 27,000 lines of code. And I think that's twice the size of the Austral compiler. Which is a rather unfair comparison because the the Austral compiler uh, is it's written in OCaml. It's a higher level language, mm. uh, so there's implicitly less in, inherently less code. But uh, it's a it's a hell of a lot of code, and there's a lot going on. And yeah, whereas Austral's linear type system, including uh, borrowing, including the ergonomic features, it's 600 lines of code. And at one point, I actually wanted to implement more more rust style ergonomics and the implementation just grew so complex that i was just getting lost and i had to like write like a document to myself okay like so this is the data structures that we're using and this is step by step let's like walk myself through the algorithm and it was just nightmarish and i and i started thinking about the, you know these features that are not not in austral but uh they may be in the future and how would i implement this how do they intersect with borrowing? And I would have to rewrite the entire algorithm and make it even more complicated. So I realized this is naturally worth it because implementation complexity is also language complexity. Because when you're reading code, you're kind of taking on part of the burden of the compiler, right? Like type systems are simple enough that when you're reading code, you're running the type system in your head and you're like running the rules in your head. And if you can't do that, then you have the situation with Rust where it's like you are, f what people say that the learning curve is like, fighting with a borrow checker. And that's a very uh, like apt analogy because you're not expected to learn how it works. You're expected to sort of iteratively work against it and sort of induce a model in your head of how it works. Um, whereas with Austral, the intention has always been there's a finite set of rules. You learn them once, you apply them everywhere. The trade-off here is a bit less ergonomics, a bit more um, more verbosity, but you can be sure that like there's no hidden language corner. There's no um, there's little room for like language lawyering or or people debating what does this line of code do? Does this type check? It's quite trivial to run the compiler in your head, and that's why the and that's why the um the the, the borrow checker six hundred lines of code. It's not because I'm a great programmer or because um OCaml is such a wonderful language that it allows you to move mountains with with a whisper. It's because there's it's doing less. And there's a trade there are trade-offs to doing less, but you know uh you know, languages occupy different volumes of language space and you're allowed to make different trade-offs. Um <laughs> Yeah, and just the, the the brief overview of this. Oh, yes. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on it because it's a kind of a convenience feature. It's just still important, though. I, I quite like it. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, instead of just taking. Oh, this is also incorrect. This shouldn't return file. 
instead of taking the file and consuming it, you just take a read-only reference to the file in the region. Our yeah. re regions are the equivalent of a Rust um, a lifetime. So instead of writing this, we just okay. continually assign one variable after the other. You just write this, where it's a much simpler code. And you're just like temporarily borrowing this and temporarily borrowing this. And the compiler can very simply say, okay, this reference does not escape the 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 expression because the expression returns nothing. Um, so it's safe and it begins after the definition of the variable and it happens before the thing is consumed. So there's nothing to mm, worry about. It's just okay. And finally, what linear types give you is you get safety because a whole class of security vulnerabilities is now gone. And yeah. you need a garbage collector. You need to hide hide memory access before uh, behind a, a fig leaf. You can have all the performance and all the all the customization of uh, low level memory management with none of the security risks. You get increased. Um, the code is a bit more more meaningful because now types don't just represent. Uh, memory shapes as in C, and they don't just represent like meaning as in Haskell or Ada or languages that allow you to define um, very fine-grained types. They also represent protocols. And so essentially, whenever you have a, a protocol that's like a state machine, you make a type for each state and the functions that take a value of one state and return another are the valid transitions. And you can implement any, any kind of any kind of like handshake, any kind of like network protocol you can implement Anything that's staged, um, you can you use linear types to ensure that there's only one way to to write the code, which is by following the correct protocol. And the programmer, whereas in C, like you know, you have all these functions and you have to read the documentation to know what yeah. order you have to call them in. And even if something works, you're not you're not quite guaranteed that it's working correctly. There's a lot of like lore to C interfaces, nah. so it's like is this really how it's done? Am I wasting memory? It's, uh, is this, does like, you know, the gray beards can tell you that actually the right way to read from a socket is so-and-so. But here there's, there's only one way to do it. And of course, because there's only one um, pointer to each value, you get concurrency for free. You don't have to use uh, locks or mutexes or semaphores or any uh, sophisticated concurrency uh, mechanisms you just when you want to do something multi-threaded you just you have your threads and you have channels connecting your threads and you pass a linear value from one thread to another through a channel and it gets consumed by sending it and then it gets picked up by reading the channel in the other thread and the yeah, but, um, okay so that would just that wouldn't consume the channel no that would no, I mean you can assume the a, linear type that's traveling in the channel. I actually have a have a, a, a an API for like linear channels. Um, it's kind of cute, but I haven't like finished it yet. But it's like um, channels would also probably be represented as linear types because they do have a, a life cycle. They have to be open and they have to be closed. Um, yeah, but you would read values from it, so so you could well, read you multiple to, values from it, right? But that well, doesn't you, mean that you're gonna close it right well it depends like on socket. um you can have um a channel can have um can have room for one value or it can be a queue 
Right. There's, there's different buffer. Interthread. Yeah. yeah, there's different like interthread um, communication mechanisms. Like the 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 if it has a single value, the function that puts another value in the in the input. Oh, then it's a one time. Input. You can kill it then. Well, I mean, like if you if, suppose you have a channel that's like it's one way and it has room mm. for one value. So the function that puts a value in it, um, it either returns uh nothing or it returns the um the object that you try to put in if the thing is full like you have to design the api so that it's not like silently discarding the values that you put in um the right i mean anything that that involves um raw like foreign function interface type stuff like the file system api like the memory api like sockets, like yeah. um, channels, you have to build a linear interface over a fundamentally unrestricted foreign API. So you have to, uh, at the edges, at the foreign function interface level, you do have to take care that things are implemented correctly and that things um, don't don't violate the linearity rules. Because when you're calling a foreign C function, C doesn't know linear types. You need to use raw unsafe pointers. You need to use that kind of thing. Um, so the idea is that there's a trust boundary at modules that provide a linear interface and a, like an unclean, dirty, unsafe implementation. Uh, yeah, and, and for, 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 for channels, um, if you want to pass a linear value, yeah, the channel has to be like empty. Uh, and, and available for uh, for putting things on it. I can also sketch. I'm going to write this down. Sketch a recursive function, and also sketch like a linear channel API. Brilliant. To um to show how this would work. I I haven't had either the time or the or the necessity to implement like interthread communication stuff. But uh, you can do it uh, safely. It's um, it's actually quite simple. Uh, you just, yeah, I mean, you just, uh, the, the linearity guarantees are easy to preserve in, in the interface. Uh, essentially, this is the same thing that Rust does. Um, Rust is kind of similar. It's more like a fine types. Um, the difference with Rust is that Rust has a much more sophisticated ownership tracking scheme because the focus on Rust has always been on like programmer happiness and ergonomics, and that involves doing a, a lot of work on the compiler for the on the programmer's behalf. And um, yeah, but 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 the basic idea is the same as Rust. There's only one mutator for each value, so when you pass up when you surrender a value from one thread to another, the ownership, the linearity guarantees are preserved, and there's only one copy of it. Um, right. Yeah, and the final thing that uh, linear types give you is capability-based security, where I think I just wrote briefly about this. Um, yeah, the motivation for this is that we have all these software packages and code in every programming language, essentially, is uniformly permissioned in the sense that Within the address space, there's no way to say that a particular piece of code can can do X or Y or or, or sell, but not other things. Um, 
you can have right so when you, when you pull in a left path dependency you don't know if that actually has malware that mm. is going to hover up your disk and send it to a, a remote server somewhere and you have these supply chain uh, vulnerabilities that are quite new like if you read the software engineering literature from the 1980s everything's about software reuse and how do we how do we make software more reusable and allow people to uh, to share code well it turns out that we have the opposite problem where we have millions of packages and everything's vulnerable to supply chain attacks because there's no way to specify any of the security properties all of the security properties really work um without the the address space like in on linux you can restrict the capabilities of an executable uh, on OpenBSD. On OpenBSD, you have something called pledge, which basically says, I won't use the console or the network or whatever. Um, and the program terminates if you try to do any of those things. But the basic idea of capability-based security is um, you are like under style permissions to code. And this limits the, um, this lets you prioritize what you want to audit. Uh, if a left path function doesn't take any uh, any like capabilities, it's just not doing anything other than maybe allocating memory. Um, but if a left path function takes a memory access capability, that's uh, like a network access capability. That's that's suspicious, and that should be audited. And of course, uh, that there's um, the boundary of this is the foreign function interface. But you can't use the foreign function interface um, everywhere. You have to use it in modules that are marked as unsafe. So the whole point of this is just to sort of like make code auditing easier. Like the only code that you have to audit is like unsafe modules that may use the foreign function interface and unsafe interfaces and things that seem to take overpowered capabilities. But I haven't explained what a capability is. And what it is is like a like a non-duplicable, unforgeable token or permission to do something, right? Uh, you can surrender it, you can just you can destroy it, you can give it up to somebody else. You cannot duplicate it, and you cannot acquire it out of thin air. You have to acquire it from some higher, more powerful capability. And yeah, oh, I know. I'm letting you explain, and then I might have some yeah. questions. Yeah, and basically, capabilities in Australia are implemented as linear types uh, because linear types are destroyed by being consumed. They're surrendered by passing them to a function or a data structure that, that captures them. They're not duplicable since linear types cannot be copied. And yeah, the fourth, fourth restriction basically involves uh, this, which is at the entry point of, a, of an Austro program, you have something called the root capability. And yeah. this is a function that, this is a value that's a linear value. And so you have to dispose of it before you close the um, the program. And the root capability cannot be created by the programmer. It can only be created uh, by the runtime, let's say. Uh, it, it appears fully formed when the program starts. You can't create it out of thin air. And that, this is the root of the capability hierarchy. Uh, this is like a simple example, like using cap a capability secure file system API, where you have a file object which is linear, a file system capability object which is linear, and this function getFS, it takes a reference to the root capability, which essentially takes proof that the client has possession of the root capability and returns a file system capability. And then open file takes a reference to the file system capability and a path. It essentially takes 
proof that the client has the file system capability and it returns a file. And write string just works as usual, takes reference to the file string. This is actually a mistake. I prepared these slides like an hour ago and they should just return none um, because it's not, it shouldn't return a file because it's not taking the file object, yeah, it's just taking right. a reference to it. Yeah. And then you have this function to release the file system capability, which consumes it and does nothing, and close file, which consume, you know, closes the file. And the way you use this is like this. You have the program entry point, you have the root capability, uh, you acquire a file system capability, you acquire a file, then you write a string, you, you call getFS by passing a reference to the root capability, and you acquire the file object by passing a reference to the file system capability. And then when you have the file, you can do whatever you want with it, write to it, close it. And finally, because FS is a linear type, you have to consume it by releasing it. And then you can do whatever else you want. And eventually you release the root capability right. and uh, you return exit success. So the basic idea here is that you, and this is you know a very simple, uh, minute example, but, the idea is that you can be arbitrarily granular and you can have a whole hierarchy of capabilities where you have the root capability, which is the ability to do anything, but you could have a file system capability, a file system for just a directory or for just a file or for just a file for like read only access or for write only access. You can have a network capability uh, for using you know the network and it could be limited to just sending things or just receiving or sending and receiving to a specific host. You can limit access to the clock because compromised packages can use the clock to do timing attacks. You can be arbitrarily granular and you can lock down everything about how the um how how your APIs work. Yeah, have... I, I just love this. I just Thank absolutely you. love this. Is if you can go back to one slide, yeah. I, I think this is absolutely fantastic. So, for example, like under getfs, you could say, um, you could say, okay, I'm only going to limit you to, for example, etc slash etc slash whatever. Yes, and then and then the program executing this just cannot. Uh, see anything other than than what it right. has given permission to. I mean, like linear uh, types are capabilities. Like if you imagine the file object is a capability. If I have a file object, I can write to it and I can just yeah. dispose of it. Um, but if I don't have a file object, I can't do that. Yeah, yeah. No, no. This is this is absolutely fantastic, and I, I really like the way that um, uh, uh, it, it's very much a hierarchical thing, and and the runtime actually. Uh, uh, generates this root capability and then from there it's up to you to sort of like pass it out so if you were to publish like um like for example a library that's that's you know with with a set of methods that um um, uh, 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 um upstream would actually use um then you would expect them to pass in a certain capability and it's up to the host program or the the the, the program calling the, li the 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 libraries to actually say well i don't necessarily trust you um yes you know you're it's a left about and you could do some yeah. sort of dodgy shit so i'm i'm only going to give you a little bit of a, a quarantine uh, a cordon sanitaire um area to operate in and right you know, i mean all, all, obviously Every language has escape hatch, and in this case, it's a foreign function interface, and that's where all, all all guarantees are over. But this is true for every language, and 
so it's not about absolute guarantees. It's about, okay, how much do I have to audit? Okay, so this is an unsafe module. It can yeah. use yeah, the yeah. foreign API. I'm going to stop sharing now because it's the... Uh, where is this? We're yeah. at the end now. It's already, yeah, this is done. Okay. And yeah, so it's like... Um, what was he saying? Right, it's about minimizing how much you have to audit because ultimately you, you do kind of have to audit your code, which uh, nobody does, but everyone says that you should whenever there's a whenever there's a like a horrible like a, a, you know a horrible hack and everyone loses their social security numbers. People say, well, they should have audited their um, five hundred trillion lines of um, node modules dependencies. Well, I mean this sort of. That's just not realistic, and uh, building an uh, an app with dependencies is also just not realistic in uh, a business sense. So you have to kind of find the um, efficient frontier there, and yeah, the the solution is simply just put some permissions on code. And uh, I I really love linear types because <laughs> they're. Um, I should just wear a shirt that has like Philip Wadler's paper called uh, "Linear Types Can Change the World." Um, because they're kind of like a secret sauce where um, they solve a lot of problems and there's many ways to implement it uh, and I think the, the Austral approach is really quite simple. You have to absorb a couple of new concepts like um, you know, all this stuff about the, the, the type universes and the, the universe split in two uh, and these things that are unusual but not terribly complicated except that maybe the terminology is new um, but the benefit you get is tremendous because you get clearer, more strict, more locked down code, and you get all these security vulnerabilities that go away. Well, I should also, note, yeah. there are other things. You, you get a, a much tighter implementation, so now you can yes. target embedded sort of environments, right? Yeah. This is this is quite nice. Uh, you were going to say you should highlight. Yeah, what? I should note. I just noticed while I was going through it. Of course, I didn't notice while reviewing. There's a few um, syntax errors in the slides. I will post the corrected slides on like Twitter or something. But um, yeah. Don't don't run the code straight from the slides. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> just just a brief note. I forgot a few return types. <laughs> oh, that um, that that happens. That happens. Um, now, like in uh, some one thing I do appreciate, for example, with a, a fellow by the name of Jonathan Blow, who's creating a programming language called Jai. Um, I met him in Hong Kong, and um, yeah, he he. He came through. Um, he was he was out in Asia for a while. He had a, a number of conferences that he was attending, and um, somebody mentioned, I think it was on Twitter, that that Jonathan Blow was in town, and who wants to come? And I, I went through and I met this fellow. Um, John John John's pretty goddamn hardcore. I really like that that fellow. Um, you know, um, but one thing that he's done is that um, he's actually created a. a an actual example or it's going to be turn it's turning into a real world uh, like an actual product that he's creating on top of jai it's implemented in jai which is a a, a sokuban type game um do you have any sort of uh application that sort of like you know kicks the tires of austral um as you're going so so the 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 actual program informs the implementation and the language design language design can benefit uh, the thing the 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 application that you're creating so far i've avoided like for example rewriting the compiler in austral because um the problem is that, that biases the design towards making a programming language that's 
great for writing compilers as opposed to building applications. Yeah, no, it doesn't necessarily have to be the compiler. It doesn't have no, to no, be no, no. bootstrapped. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, um, mm -hmm. I mean, I mostly focus on like building examples and building test tech cases, and I'm working on the standard library at present. Um, mm. The language is effectively done. There's some... Um, there's really, I mean, of course, nothing is done and things are only ever asymptotically done and that's very frustrating. But um, yeah, I'm drafting like the next release is going to be like core language done. And there's only a couple of language features that I have to, um, yeah, um, implement. It, it's really like, just like a, just like this minor subtlety, like generic type parameters in, in type class methods, which doesn't have to mean anything. Um yeah, just a, a minor corner that's left unsanded. And afterwards, the language is like ready for use. And um, not necessarily the wisest thing to use in production at an early stage, but you can experiment with it and build real things with it. Um, it's at least it's at, at least as safe as C because the compiler, the bootstrapping compiler just throws out a bunch of C code. So, because it was simpler than, you know, do dealing with LLVMs, uh, <laughs> fortnightly breaking changes and building 500 gigabytes of, uh, of, of source code. Uh, leave me alone. I'm just going to use GCC, whatever. Um, yeah, I have, I have a few applications that I've, um, I've had on the back burner that I've, uh, been like, when I finish Austral, this is gonna, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to write them in Austral and it's like, okay, how long has this been going on? Um, I think I, I like to write the, the build system and package manager in Austral. Um, the standard library that I'm working on now, uh, obviously it's going to be written in Austral. Um, uh, applications, um, there's a, I've long had a project to write like a LaTeX replacement, like a document preparation system, uh, because for some reason this is like, this is like the thing that I'm cursed to do for all eternities to write document preparation systems and, and personal wikis. I, I've done this like 17 times. And uh, yeah, I have this mostly formed idea in my mind of what I want for like a, from like a LaTeX replacement. And uh, I think I could write it now. So um, it's mainly just about because LaTeX is um, it's just this strange 70s thing. That, uh, I mean, it's just so strange that it hasn't been replaced yet. So, so finicky and, and weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and indeed. Um, so, yeah, okay. So what did you find that capabilities just sort of emerged out of the design of, of choosing uh, uh, linear types? Or was that an active... Um, design goal that you were seeking, because it because uh, it feels it feels like something that's sort of just like, oh, and here we have this now. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, uh, this is one of the instances where I wish I kept better documentation, like a lab notebook or like my thoughts, what my thoughts were at the time. But it does emerge quite naturally um, when you think about it. I think, um, goodness, I'm sure you can find a bibliography talking about the um, the connection between linear types and capabilities. Uh, I think this. There's a Microsoft research paper for like the Bolt programming language where they talk about like um, type states, which was this thing they made up to like handle like, um... oh yes, yes, now remember. Um, I think there's a paper called 
aside from that, aside from the type state program, there's a paper called Enforcing Low-Level Protocols. Enforcing high-level protocols in low-level software. And I think that talks about like, like a linear-ish type system for um for doing capability-based security. Um, I'm sure I can find some paper that incepted the idea in my, in, my, in my head, but it really does fall quite naturally out of the design where, yeah, I mean, you have these rules and the linear types are themselves capabilities uh, because if you go, if you have, um, if you have a linear value, you have permission to destroy it, um, to do whatever you want with it. And from that, you you quite naturally get the notion of we can represent permissions and because there's actually kind of a spectrum. Um, like a file object is a file pointer, but it's also a capability to do something with that file. Um, the root capability is like an empty type. It doesn't have any values because it doesn't represent anything except this, the semantic concept of being a permission slip. It exists mostly exclusively at the level of, of the types and uh, ideally the compiler would just not materialize it because it, it contains no data. Uh, so there's a spectrum where at, at one end you have things that are more pure capabilities. They're just, they carry no information. They're just permission slips. And at the other end, you have things that are more like linear values that have um, like a file object that has an under that contains an actual pointer to to, um, to a file that you get from the C standard library, or a database socket that under inside of it it actually contains an actual pointer to the um, database socket. Um, but they're all they're all capabilities. I think I, uh, the, the pure capabilities are the ones that are, exist. Um, purely for like clerical purposes that don't have values, that don't hide some implementation detail inside of them that are just um, about permissioning code and determining what piece of code can do what. All right. Within the language that I'm I'm trying to implement, it's called CEO. Um, Sorry, what's it called? CEO, S-I-O, secure okay. input, secure input output. Rather, rather lame. I just wanted the three letters, <laughs> and yeah, some. Good. <laughs> and I, then... li I like acronyms. Yes. A lot of people uh, find them, you know, stodgy. <laughs> now, now, one one thing I'm I'm going for is is the Erlang style lightweight lan language processes, and um, and because I I just love the um the supervisor uh, nature of Erlang. You know, Erlang OTP has a a series of supervisors, and the idea is that. If there is an error that occurs within myself, I'm not going to do a self-operation, as is the case of that fellow there down in Antarctica, or the only medical doctor down in Antarctica, and uh, you know he had an appendicitis. So the only one who could perform the operation was himself. He, he told that he told the, his his colleagues like hold the mirror in this position, and he you know he cut his gut open and remove the appendix himself um yeah. and you know so then somebody else might have sewn himself up so the idea is that you always want to have somebody else other than yourself to fix you up um in other I words i think that sound i think that's that makes sense with regards to what we know about like computer security at present um yes is recovery mechanisms are um handholds for attackers to to use and it is, I think, almost overwhelmingly the case that whenever you have, um, whenever you find yourself in an inconsistent or suspicious state, just crash the crash the process or the, the address space as a whole, preferably. 
And that's how Austral does error handling. It's actually very Spartan. Um, it's sort of like Rust's panics, just crush the whole thing. So, so this um, is exactly the, the 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 right mentality, in my opinion. So when yes, I saw but this, I think, and... uh, yeah, I think Austral mm -hmm. um, is a bit more uh, perverse in that it just crushes the entire address space, whereas with Erlang you have the lightweight processes. Right. And um, you just crush the process. And Rust works the same way. You have um, tasks. I think it's the terminology and the uh, abort, uh, panicking um, crushes the um, the current task, but not everything else. I think I, I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Um, but yeah, go on. So, so this is exactly the idea: is that is that within when you when one has a virtual machine that supports lightweight language processes, and you re-implement a supervisor uh, type hierarchy. Um, a supervisor does one and only one thing, and that's to monitor its workers, you see. So the workers would do the processes and then I mean, it, the, the functioning. And then should a failure or an error happen within one of those things, just abort the, the, the address space, just, just kill that process. And then the supervisor might have a set of rules and it's programmed to do certain things. For example, maybe the supervisor says, okay, one of them crashed, so I'm going to execute all of them and then start up the entire uh, the entire uh, set of of workers, or it might just restart that single worker. So in this in this way, you actually have um, uh, an error recovery mechanism, which actually just basically it returns back to a de deterministic uh, um, uh, 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 result. You know, you you move away from non-determinism, and then by doing this uh, this uh, execution sort of style you can bring it back into a deterministic state because and, and the reason why i say that is because i'm implementing a, a data flow programming language concurrent data flow which means that it doesn't matter how many threads or things that you throw at it it will always be deterministic on the outside so anyway so i mean that's that's just a, a, a nice side effect that sort of comes from from or or what you've got in austral how you handle the errors um, but in your situation, you just abort the entire operating system process. You just yeah, kill it all. Um, uh, there's a gradation. There's a section in the rationale of, of the language that explains um, the reasoning behind the error handling mechanism more uh, more thoroughly. The basic idea is that you have this categorization of errors, and yeah. you have things like abstract machine violations and invariant violations, like a, like an assertion that's false, or you know stack overflow or things like that, and those crash the program. And then you have things that are more pervasive, like memory location failure, or things that are not really quite failures, but just expect the circumstances. Like if you open a file and the file doesn't exist, that's not cause to throw an exception. Um, it's um, you just return a value. Mm. Uh, the the file system APIs that I that I showed in the example, uh, they don't have any error handling stuff because obviously it's introductory material. It's um, it would take the focus away from the from the introduction. But yeah, the, the basic idea is that as in Rust, as in Haskell, as in every functional programming language, failure conditions are handled by values by just using values. And um, things that are really quite severe or indicative of of um of a computer security um problem lead to terminating the entire address space. Um, where was I going with this? 
So yeah, the, the, um, there's actually a rather lengthy section about this in the in the rationale for the language about how I chose the error handling thing. The reason Austral doesn't have like traditional exception handling is first, it's not compatible with linear types, and there's a, like a rather lengthy proof of why that's the case. Um, and this is actually why Rust works the way that it does. Mm. Um, a lot of Rust's design decisions, like how the structures work, um, the fact that types can be discarded silently, uh, not have to be explicitly consumed, is because Rust wants to have like traditional C++ Java-style exception handling, where you throw an exception and it unwinds the stack and calls the, the, the structures for you. Uh, you can't really do that with linear types. You can do that with Rust's um, ownership tracking uh, mechanism. Uh, the problem with exception handling, and re the reason I rejected it, is that it's um, hugely complex. I mean, a rule I have for Austral, I, I call it an anti-feature, because it's one of the features that it doesn't have, is that there's no surprise control flow, and there's no... Um, there's no like hidden function calls or anything like that. If it's not on the page, it is not happening. And yeah, I mean, um, uh, people have said a lot about exception handling, about you know performance claims, uh, often hard to substantiate. Um, just pros and cons. But I, I just have like you know, there's a section of the rationale that's just like my 95 thesis against exception handling, and it bloats the code. It's implicit control flow. You can't reason about it. The compiler struggles to optimize code because uh, every every function call is like a landmine. It could go off or maybe not. Um, lots and lots of problems, uh, which I won't necessarily go over. But yeah, no, I no, mean, I, 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 yeah, I completely agree with you. And 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 as a result, like after, like I'm totally in your side of the court on this. And and when when you when you when you join this with lightweight language processes, which have the attitude of well, fuck it, just die. It's just it works so well, and it yeah. removes so much complexity from things. Yeah, yeah. Because when you do actually handle errors, and um, when you do actually renounce exception handling and just decide to handle um, errors as values. That's a nice thing to say in yeah. theory. The actual practice of it is not great. Um, of course, of course, people complain about Go where the median line of Go code is if, error, nil, something like that. Just there's a lot of error handling. The same is true with Rust and um, to a lesser extent. And the same is true to a probably greater extent with Austral, where this, if you want to do things um, correctly, it actually, it's uh, very verbose. Um, so for like prototyping code, you might just say, okay, abort, abort here, and I'll come back to this and I'll clean it up and do like proper error handling later. Um, I know definitely that in the implementation of Austral, which is written in OCaml, some of the code handles errors as, as values, uh, but much of it just throws an exception and just gets gets out of the way because that's that's just simple. And it is, um, yeah, I mean, just doing it right, handling errors as values is. Uh, I think Sig, which is a new language, has some um, has some ergonomic tools for this. It has some convenience features for doing this, like uh, with with less horror. But uh, it's just such a nightmare, such a nightmare. And when you can just destroy the process and clean everything up automatically and just restart the process, 
uh, that's such a boon because you can, as with exception handling, you can just focus on the, the happy path and ignore the error handling um, until the program crashes. Now, the problem with uh, lightweight processes and just crashing just the process is that it's not really compatible with linear types because the compiler doesn't have a special knowledge about what is in the structure. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, oh. like, in Rust, there's, um, you have the drop method, or drop trait, and that's the, the, the structure interface for all types. So the compiler knows what the structure is, and it knows, it, it inserts um, the structure calls implicitly, both for the happy path when something goes out of scope, and also it inserts the destructor calls in the um, in the exception handling case where the code that unwinds the stack and calls the destructors is generated by the compiler. Um, with linear types, because there's no implicit uh, function calls, there's no implicit control flow, there's none of that, the compiler doesn't generate code for you, which means you can't clean up automatically in an... Um, um, in an unplanned abort because there's really nothing to do. Uh, and I thought about this for quite some time. There's really no way to preserve soundness, which means, and the reason why Australcast crashes the um, entire process rather than the thread is that because you can't, because there are no destructors, the destructors do not get called, um, sockets and files do not get closed. So if you try to just crush the, the task and restart it, you would leak memory and you would leak file handles and you would leak network sockets. And eventually you would have um, a denial of service attack. Um, so basically Austral relies on, uh, for, for bugs and things like that, Austral just relies on uh, using the operating system as a garbage collector, basically. Uh, crash the program and let the operating system recover the memory and the file sockets and the uh, the locks and things like that. Which is why most errors have to be handled as values within the code as opposed to just crashing the program. And crashing the program really is restricted to things like um, yeah. invariant violations that are bugs in the code, not errors. Um, abstract machine violations like the, um, the, the stack overflows. And things that are like probable security vulnerabilities that if you have a, like an integer overflow that could be an attack just kill the whole thing so i might be able to get away with this because i'm targeting in an embedded environment i deliberately don't want to have an operating system um some of the logic behind this is that i'd like to have a programming language which has authority to spend my bitcoin hot wallet so um which is which is a little bit nerve-wracking right so uh yes. <laughs> so the attitude of of uh of uh of, of security is, is quite uh, you know, I have to be pretty strong about this. In other words, only a single process, uh, a lightweight language process, will have authority to 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 write uh, transactions and then submit them into the Bitcoin network. But then also at the same time, because of capabilities, um, uh, it would actually grant capabilities to uh, authorized processes to make requests on. Uh, on uh, and, and ma to make requests for those transactions to happen um but at no time will any other process uh, language process be able to see the private key for example um so 
Now, now where was I going with this? Um, we were talking about, uh, oh shit, we were talking about, yeah, errors. Oh yes, so, so, and also, and also, I want to avoid the concept of file systems entirely. I don't want, I don't want access to any yeah. file system because uh, because I've created a, a new networking protocol, which is an information centric protocol. Uh, it's, it's 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 a new fancy stuff. It's it's not a uh, it's not like a uh, IP based. Basically, it's a replacement of IP, um, and you can actually request information by name. So, for example, your public key, um, and then slash. Um, it might be the slideshow, for example, a hierarchical naming slideshow, and then eventually your 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 virtual machine sitting on on your, your system over there will get a request, and then it's like, oh yes, okay, it's coming from Stuart McKenzie. I'm I'm happy to 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 send it back. So then it'll encrypt it using my public key and your private key, and then I'll take it back because I have your public key. I'll be able to decrypted and then get the information from there so so this this adds a, a more levels of of of, of um, security in the sense that everything that's beyond the process the lightly language process boundary gets encrypted so and uh, so this means that and, and every process is addressable via the public key so this sort of like adds an interesting level of um of information in the sense that i'm hoping that all of the the lower level stuff, for example, access to networking sockets, et cetera, is all at virtual machine level. Could be say like the operating system level. And then the, the lightweight language processes only communicate, can only communicate by uh, sending these this, these bits of information uh, in, in encrypted form using this uh, networking protocol. Um, so as a result, I, I think I might be able to get away with, um, but then, but then one asks, like at that point, does one actually have any sort of a need for a linear type within 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 the actual process itself? I don't uh, know. I mean, if if you have like um, if the language is sort of like a pure function that takes its values and just returns some simple value like a like a string or some such, um, it may not may not you may not need that. Um, it depends. I think. I think domain-specific languages have generally lighter restrictions, whereas Austral is meant as a general-purpose uh, language, which is kind of, I suppose, a DSL for algor algorithms in general. Um, so, yeah, it's meant to be able to um, handle a, like a wide range of things. Um, I think it depends on to what extent you want this via DSL. I think, like, for example, Bitcoin has Bitcoin script, which I think is like this very small... Um, stack-based virtual machine with like six opcodes or something like that. And um, it's very limited. So depending on the amount of power you need, you might be able to get away with like a virtual machine and a very small language-like thing um, or code, like a, like a fourth or something. Yeah, no, I, I have thought about that, but I prefer it to be a general purpose uh, uh, language kind of thing because you know I'd like to do all sorts of like uh, maybe calculations or decisions based on on other people's um, uh, information because everything that you create will be signed by you so I trust you that that maybe you you for example are, are giving me the weather the right weather of uh, in in certain parts of maybe you're in Australia um, I, you know and because I, maybe I trust you so like I trust your certificate your 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 public keys. 
Um, and therefore I can, I might be, make decisions based on that. So yes, there's an element of trust and, and, um, in these sorts of systems, but, um, and, and finally, uh, maybe depending on an, a number of sources of input, because it's basically, I'm implementing trusted computing at this point. Um, I may, might make a decision, decision, which results in, for example, spending Bitcoin, but, yeah. but, but, but the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin spending is just, um, it's just basically it's a it's like a requirement that I'm imposing on myself to design a secure system. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. It's it's like <laughs> it's not necessarily like my primary goal of using it. It's just like okay, let's have a system which is yeah. like a secure input output. Okay, um, I I I, ho I put I put my money where my mouth is, right? Yeah, something like this. <laughs> I I have two ideas here the, the oh, first I, I think is this is varying le levels of practical but um if you have a sub chewing language a language that is uh a total general language purpose, yeah and not um chewing complete you can prove a lot more um of course that somewhat takes the general purpose out of it but you can i mean you don't I mean, people have written large programs in total languages. You don't need Turing completeness everywhere. And um, I guess, especially for compilers, might not even need Turing completeness in a lot of the passes. Um, the second is there's a trade-off between theorem, um, between software verification and the complexity, both of the implementation and the semantics of the language being proven, because you have type systems and then you have fancier type systems like uh, Haskell or linear types. Diminishing returns. Well, and don't, not necessarily. I mean, I, I guess in the sense that you're taking off more of the vulnerabilities, but um, if you want total assurance, you need something like um, automated theorem proving or like a, like um, a proof assistant or an mm -hmm. SMT solver or you know, Ada has a subset. There's a subset of Ada called Spark, and it's a name that's um, very overloaded. And there's like 50 million software projects called Spark. <laughs> but um, Spark is basically just a subset of Ada that is translated to the Y3 theorem prover to make uh, proofs about like totality and correctness. And it's a very old project, and it's had a lot of work done on it. And you can actually prove quite sophisticated things. You can prove the correctness of sorting algorithms. You can prove all sorts of things. You can prove um, it's used, you know, in like defense, aerospace uh, type stuff for safety critical things, um, things that human lives depend on, which I would not use Austral for, just to say I would not use C or or C++ or Rust. Um, when, when, when human lives are on the line, there's genuinely... Um, and it's arguable when you cross this point. There's a, a genuine professional need to use much more sophisticated tools, and that involves, you know, theorem proving and, and, and guarantees of formal guarantees of correctness. And Spark is nice, but it is a subset, and I mean, it is a subset. It's very, very Spartan what you can do, and it's only very recently because a, 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 um, Ada, being, even though it's a low-level language, it has some nice properties. It has like um, stack allocated arrays, which unlike C are actually safe. Um, 
stack allocated arrays with like a like statically unknown size. Uh, so that lets you avoid using pointers for a lot of things and like embedded devices can use a fixed size stack allocated arrays mm -hmm. where otherwise a C program would have to allocate memory. Um, the so Ada as a consequence of that, Ada lets you Spark lets you put quite a bit of, of code and recently pointers used to be banned. And I think recently they're like backporting like um like an ownership tracking scheme from Rust. So oh. you can prove things or code using pointers. Um but that's a rather uh, recent change I think. Um I would say that Ada is probably like the Spark Ada is probably the, the most like sophisticated um or like let's say the most practical um software verification thing for like real things and like real medical devices and things like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's other options um for C and other languages. Uh this really isn't something that has an easy answer because verification is such a complex topic and it deals with mathematical logic and proof, mm. automated theorem proving and, and what's a proof and um verifying the correctness of the prover itself and all, all there's all sorts of uh, difficulties here. So being able to use your Bitcoin hardware wallet is well hot not... wallet, not hardware wallet. Hot oh wallet. sorry, sorry. Um <laughs> I misunderstood hot wallet. Right. The the one that's connected to the internet. Yes, that's right. Um yeah, that's rather a, a heavy requirement because it's not quite it's not quite, you know, a pacemaker, but uh, no. it is a lot, and it, it, it is hard. Um, you have all these contract languages for, like, blockchain stuff that I haven't really kept up on. Um, oh, no, no, I, I can't be bothered with all of that stuff. Just just keep it simple. So the idea is that those contract languages, those sort of smart contract language level stuff, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bad direction because they all want to consume the world. Do you see what I mean? Like, how the hell are you going to... You run a pizza shop. You want to put every single transaction of like a you know some pizza that you've made through or 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 whatever conditional contracts. You know, it's just it's it's you can't do that. You can't take all the information of the world and stick it on a blockchain. It's just a non-starter. So the right. idea now is that you just have the consensus layer um, on the Bitcoin level, which is also acts as like a time time uh, global timing sort of uh, mechanism. It marches the step by step. Um, and then you just have a distributed um, programming language. And the idea now is to use uh, Church Rossa, which is a, a sort of a subset of functional programming, which um, um, which allows you to have these, uh, uh, like a functional programming, which can operate and execute over distributed nodes, um, but does not require consensus. It's not, uh, it's not, uh, yes, it converges. It eventually converges, but, but um, you know, you can still make decisions about things. And, and like in during, once it's converged, because everything's data flow, every variable is a data flow variable. So either it's, you can, you can create, you can instantiate, for example, um, uh, um, uh, I is, is a, a, a U64, um, but it's not bound, so it's unbound. And you you might be able to send this the, this uh, this variable to somewhere else, and then later on it gets bound. And then once it's bound, it's monotonic in the sense that it it, it forever remains bound. 
So uh, yeah, I'm also thinking maybe yeah. So so it forever remains bound, and you can you can basically throw a whole bunch of con uh, concurrency primitives at this. You know, spin up a number of threads, but because of the because of the um, immutability of every single variable, um, it will converge to that value and remain deterministic. So once you have the, this this um, this direction of uh, determinism, um, and you introduce the church rosser uh, sort of like theorem, you can now start to do distributed computation across number number of nodes. Of course, you need to introduce things like capabilities and and like encryption because you now you're on the open internet. It's not like Erlang, which is a high performance cluster. You try doing Erlang over over the open internet. It's it's really not not a fun thing. It's not fun. It, it's 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 fucking yeah, hell. The internet is not a great data center. No, I mean I I don't know much about distributed programming actually. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Right. It, it's uh, a bit of a different kettle of fish, but but yeah, the primary thing is the distributed programming, and then the idea is that like um because now every single process is now addressable by public key, um um in essence one could implement something like for example like a lightning network but you don't have any ip addresses in there man it's just no. it's just like i send i send information to your public key i send i send a transaction to to your public key end of story um and even if even if like for example in a noted net no, networks um the virtual machine will talk to the ip address of another virtual machine but on a higher level on the information level addressability is not via ip address it's via public key so if i if i send information to your public key and this particular ip address channel breaks down or something then it'll just reroute through another uh, another 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 pathway over another set of ip addresses um anyway this, this is a this is a addressing is a different for, level pro this <laughs> is for the, for the protocol that you you're working on uh, yeah, I've already I've already implemented mm -hmm. it. Um, yeah, and it's in, it's it's called Copernica, but but I think I'm going to re-implement it. But this time I'm going to be targeting an embedded environment, which poses another set of challenges. Yes, especially yes. with like memory and not having an operating system. I mean, yes. these are true. <laughs> this is a combination of two hard problems with this distributed computing and embedded computing, and actually a third problem, which is verified or trusted computing and how you ensure that the program is doing what, uh, what the formal specification says. So this is rather ambitious, uh, rather yes. ambitious uh, conjunction of, uh, of open problems in computer science to tackle. I know, um, I know. But I got to occupy my time, man. I got to occupy I my time. <laughs> I know you have the, you have the things you have to get the projects out of your system. Yes, yes. Otherwise, I'd just be driven mad here. Like it just got, it's just, it's just got to come out. Um, it's, it's some sort of like, some people like to dance, right? I have to do this. <laughs> yes, I, 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 um, I know the feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose we can, we can, uh, uh, we can uh, move away from programming languages and whatnot. What are, what other sort of like, uh, where you're in Australia now? Is that right? Uh, yes. And and originally you're from born and raised in Italy. Uh, Uruguay, actually. Uruguay. Ah, oh, interesting. Okay. And then what brought you to Australia? Oh uh, yeah, I always wanted to leave Uruguay, and I, um, uh, I felt like Australia was a good choice. Uh, you know, it's a it's an Anglo-speak country where people speak English, and there's a there's good weather and things like that. And um, 
yeah, I just got a work visa and I moved here just um, just uh, late 2019. Don't don't the... you miss home? Don't you miss uh, Uruguay? <laughs> uh, I miss my I, I miss my family. Okay. Uh, um. Yeah, I miss um a few friends. Um. Not terribly. Okay. Frankly. It's um. It's much better here. <laughs> Is that so? Yeah, well, okay. It, it, things are more stable. I mean, but uh... <laughs> um, I mean, it's um. I would say it's the opposite of the death of a thousand cuts. It's um, everything's okay. uh, better in subtly different ways, uh, in a thousand little subtly different ways. Okay, okay, yeah, no, no. My my, my wife would love for us to move to like Melbourne. Um, we're based in Hong Kong at the moment, and uh, yeah, Melbourne is number one on her list. So she she keeps like, come on, let's go over to Melbourne. No. <laughs> Melbourne is nice. Um, it's arguably better than Sydney in some ways. Uh, Sydney is a really beautiful city. Yeah. Arguably, Melbourne has better nightlife. Um, gloomier weather uh, should have uh, a Shinkansen train network because it's a very sprawly. Um, just don't live too far. But yeah, Melbourne's beautiful. Go to Melbourne. Visit Melbourne, at least. <laughs> yeah, we've been there a number of times already. Yeah. No, I ta taxes in Australia... Or a bit, a bit high. I, I kind of like the tax yeah. of of Hong Kong. It's, it's good. Fifteen. I don't have too many terribly. I don't have too many terrible complaints about the taxes here. The economic situation. Okay. Things are fine. Things are good. Well, fine. No, fine, fine. Well then, uh, is there anything else you want to sort of like raise and talk uh, talk about? Uh, maybe technical, non-technical. Any sort of like. Uh, the, uh, something else that you're working on that you want to point people to or uh, uh... Um, go check out the language and I'll open the, the issues tab and uh, <laughs> perhaps if you know Okamal, a contributions are appreciated <laughs> I, I have been horribly procrastinating on writing like the, the, the introductory post where it's like the official you know uh, come, welcome come, to the world come, come look at, at the thing post um, where I would outline yeah like um beyond just contributions welcome just like what people can can work on um yeah i think like the language is in a, in like developing at a, at a good pace the compiler is essentially finished uh it's not the smartest compiler in the world but it implements the language faithfully uh i'm building like a simple standard library eventually there's going to be like a build system slash package manager i I really appreciate it as like a learning opportunity because how often do you get to like design a standard library for language? And, yeah. and you get to learn all the data structures and uh, all the all the file system APIs and things like that. And um, yeah, I have a small number of other technical projects and things that interest me and like non-technical projects. Uh, follow me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll put that in the in the description of the video. Good. But Thanks. uh uh, Fernando, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so yeah, much for thank you for, for having me. Yeah, thank you for for uh, writing such inspirational work, uh, both the code as well as the prose, um, and and giving this this uh, this uh, overview of linear types. I think I think you've sold me on it, and I'm I'm going to definitely try to work that into the into into my language, and uh, and I might even list a Austral as a as an influence of of uh, of uh, of my programming language. So so there you go. I mean.
it's it's barely out of the the, the gates and it's already influencing <laughs> other languages <laughs> well thank you i am um, at least i can say that i, I influenced one person uh, yeah like dale carnegie suggests <laughs> well thanks so um, much mate uh, thank yeah. you for having me and oh. uh yeah i'm happy to talk in the future if you like have like language design questions or, or want a, a, a language theory sounding board for uh, like future ideas I because really i've spent uh, an excessive amount of time thinking about like the trade-offs and the, the programming language implementation yeah I'm, I'm ready to sort of finalize this and move on to like actually using the language instead of just building all these languages yeah great i, I appreciate that that gesture is uh um yeah it's 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 very welcome i might take you up on that actually <laughs> thanks mate okay thank you all the best let me stop the recording now Thank <laughs> you.